If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So, Ben, um, we might as well begin uh, with some beginnings. Okay. Um, the Age of Wire and String is a book of stories, but in some ways, these stories resemble encyclopedia entries, uh, instruction manuals, um, excerpts from such, uh, glossaries. Um, how did you come to write stories in this way? Um, and is it is it the way? Is this the way you started off writing fiction? I started off writing bad fiction that looked like it was written by many other people. Uh, well, it looked like the kind of fiction written by many other people, just a bad version, and I quickly decided if I was going to write badly, I should do it in a way that only only I could. And uh, I think what, what happened first is uh, I realized that when I read let's say, the encyclopedia or a reference work, work of philosophy, that I would read incorrectly or I, I would read part of a sentence and finish the rest of it in my head or that, that the reading even of a phrase would somehow start something that I would just finish. And I, I think I'd been doing this for a long time and it, then one day it occurred to me that Possibly that was a form of writing, and I just didn't know it. I did. I just hadn't recorded any of it. I hadn't written any of it down, and it seemed to require reading. It, it seemed as though uh, I, I wasn't. Ju- I couldn't just sort of sit down with nothing and do it. Uh, it 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 needed a text of some sort, but it was a text that would quickly be left behind. And so I I, I think I just started to transcribe these misreadings of encyclopedia entries that were they weren't I wasn't necessarily trying to upgrade or improve but I was just trying to give myself pleasure it was like a form of self-pleasuring I could make myself feel things if I did this if I changed the words then I could feel these little thrills it was like a sort of you know a, a sort of reading as sex it was like a way to give myself little bits of pleasure and so i just started to write them out 
Where did that pleasure occur? In my body? In your body. What part of your body? <clears throat> it was mostly in other people's bodies. And if you, <laughs> some of you are old enough, if you think back to around 1995, that those unexplained moments of arousal you, you were having. <laughs> that was me. Uh, I think it, well, it, all, all I'm really talking about is whatever literary delight really is. Yeah. What is it when you have that moment of feeling transported or amazed or surprised or delighted or disgusted? Really, it was any kind of feeling at all. Because if I opened the encyclopedia and I was reading something kind of dry and I never had a, a really serious appetite for learning. I was never very good at learning. I was never quite sure what, what or why I was learning something. And so I think I, if I gave myself permission to change things so that I would feel more, then that was a way to write something just directly for myself. Now, um, in the age of wire and string, um, you have a lot of what's impossible as far as I know in the world becomes possible such as houses made out of hair uh, units of time that are stones um, yet the book is very elemental um, it's broken up into parts that have titles like animals weather society um, what sort of I don't I don't recall I don't I know there are films mentioned in the in the uh text but I don't recall computers for instance being mentioned um so I guess what I'm wondering is when much that's impossible is possible but much is also left out what kind of restraint were you op did were you operating under conscious restraints as you were writing this book. You know, I, I, I wish I could say yes. I, I, uh, I think once I'd written a certain amount of stuff, I, I discovered that my imagination was extremely limited. That if there was a man, he would have some cloth in his mouth, and then the cloth would be recording his thoughts, or it would be some kind of like language towel. Like there was just this way that I kept doing the same thing. It was like I had my stuffed animals, or as call them something different over here. Loveys? Stuffies? <laughs> Plushies? Seriously, what do you call I don't, stuffed animals? I, don't look at me. No one is going to answer. What? Teddies. Teddies. And it's like I just, now I forgot my what I was going to say about them. But aren't they great, teddies? Uh, I, I, I was just... Once I read a lot, read back a lot of what I'd written, I noticed a lot of patterns. And I noticed that I I, I did try to do something in language that you can't do out in the world. I think at the time I thought, well, for writing to be any in, of any interest to me, it shouldn't be something that could be filmed or converted into anything. I, <clears throat> my father's a mathematician, and I was always very terrible at math, um, and and I felt ashamed of that. But I and I had a kind of romantic, possibly true notion of of what he did and what he does. He, he's a statistician, a probabilist, and when people ask him what he, what he does, he, there is, there's no answer that they can understand, and math has no secondary language in the side carriage that comes along, meaning to sort of explain it in simpler language. It's just sort of, it, there is no way to describe it. 
um, you sort of do it and you're part of the club or you don't. And I think for a little while, maybe in an arrogant mm -hmm. way, certainly in an uninformed <coughs> way, I, I liked the idea of writing being that way. That it would, was going to be hard to get your head around or describe or reduce or um, summarize. Well, speaking of one particular sounds fun. One particular word, um, you wrote an essay that I love uh, in 2005 about experimental fiction. And the first time you use that word, you say so-called experimental fiction. Um, and you're usually you're often identified as an experimental fiction writer. How useful do you think that word and other words like innovative? or say words like avant-garde are um, to you other than when you have to introduce yourself at a party? <laughs> because no one will introduce me. <laughs> I like, this, one, this guy's going to introduce himself now. Uh, the word experimental just makes me sad. And depressed. I, I think it, it could be carrying so much weight, it could be doing so much, but in the end it seems to always remind me of a unnecessary commercial distinction being made and it reminds me that in other art forms, let's say in painting, we don't really go out of our way to say, well, this is especially innovative and interesting painting. If you go to a show of paintings, there are paintings and, and it, it just, it, it so looks like a kind of ghetto in uh, in writing, or if, if someone's experimental, it's like, well, this dickhead believes that there's something new still to be done, and fuck him, let's not even bother reading him, because why would we want to bother with that? Because Jane Austen figured it all out. And now we're going to just refine, or we're going to depopulate the Jane Austen novels and put our own little teddies and stuffies and loveys inside it and then that's going to count as our fiction so and it's just such a broad odd term in some sense it should just be a given that probably any newer writer on the planet aka somebody who's reading and being amazed by language and is thinking possibly however foolishly that something inside him and her has yet to be put down in language on the page that there's there's a dream of something new or unprecedented or that, that to do it now will feel new and we know all of this is foolish but in some sense it seems like a given and in that sense then what is, what, what is the word experimental really meant to mean and so since I think it's used to mean unreadable wanking self-indulgent prose I, I have felt like I wanted to distance myself from it not that I don't sometimes write that um, Samuel in your novel the flame alphabet at a certain point ends up in an underground laboratory called Forsyth in a former high school um, and he's trying to come up with a serum that will cure this toxic language spoken by children that has essentially just fell in his wife Claire um, did you was he, when he enters that lab, is he in some ways kind of enacting, well, I don't want to force any reading on, how did he, how oh, does he ahead. end up in that lab? And does that have anything to do with your being an experimental writer? <laughs> Even if you're Even if not. I'm saying I'm not. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Samuel in the novel is 
he's he's in flight. His daughter has sickened him. He's on the run. He's been distanced from his wife, and he would like to invent a new language that people can use without getting sick. So in some sense, I, I see his reasons for being there as kind of <clears throat> paternal and self-serving, and those two things, at least the way I parent, often do go together. Um, he's, you know, he 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 would like to believe that all will be well if he can if he can make language palatable again. But to me, underlying it is that the family was sort of broken to begin with. Uh, I've heard this question before: that is, is some analog, and am I enacting my own sort of literary anxieties about of being anxious about readability and? I really hope not, because if that's all that's going on, that, that I, seems so. I didn't mean to imply that that was all. That's no, going on. you know, uh, but I, I think I, I, in writing that book, I, I, I came to believe that language really does hurt to consume. That when people talk to me, it does hurt. It hurts all the time, and it's taxing in a way. It's weary. It's wearying when people say things. You have to think about them and process them, and and probably if no one ever spoke to us, we would maybe be healthier and live longer, maybe maybe not healthier. Um, so in some sense, I I convinced myself of of the the truth of this ailment. It didn't seem far fetched at all. It seemed, in fact, inevitable that as we refine our weaponry, as we perfect ways of stealthily harming each other or you know uh, as we might do in a relationship then l language just seems like such an obvious place place to do that so i guess i, I was I, I was i was just trying to see w what the dramatic conclusion of that problem would be and what it would look like in a book for someone to really be taking that on and and, and failing at it and i you know, I don't really think about the infighting in the literary world or some beef I may or may not have with somebody or or really what, what the future is of literary language. Or I don't think of it consciously. Now, Samuel is also at least – Samuel is a Jew. He goes to synagogue with his family. But the book also has what are called forest Jews, which – I'm not aware of as an actually existing sect yet and yet and um, there's a lot that is done in holes by this religion yes um, so I guess I'm wondering um, it's Judaism and it's not Judaism um, why not fabricate an entirely new religion or you know what it, what it, what what's the flux between authenticity and yeah fiction there well i i i always wanted to create a religion in a novel and i always saw religions as beautiful and successful fictions they they have to be believable it is how scientology started after all <laughs> well you know he sort of thought he was writing I just read Going Clear by uh -huh. right. He sort of thought he was writing self self help. I mean he did write his fiction and yeah. and it's true they, they, they started to come together in, in ways that are are a little disturbing. But I I wanted to I wanted to create a religion 
because religions have to be believable. They have to tackle big questions. They have to be beautiful and compelling in some sense, be the sort of, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing ambition to do it. And, and early in the book, I, I was feeling as though I was inventing a new religion, but it seemed foolish and harmless and, and kind of impotent as a concept within the book when if, if it were to just have an invented name and connecting it to Judaism sort of opened the book up to me and in fact one of the things that attracts me about Judaism is that there is really there's there's no attempt to proselytize where we're walking around saying you know you should be Jewish come on you know we need more Jews in fact it's sort of the it's sort of the opposite it's like you're not. You're not. You never will be. Just go away. I'll, you know, I'll be friends with you, but only to a certain point. And so there's this kind of there's a in the, if you look at that or if you exaggerate that, it's a, it moves towards a kind of privacy. And in Kabbalah, there's this there and in, you know the, the Jewish mysticism or really any mystic tradition, there's a feeling that language is inadequate. That um, the true religious experience transcends language and we want to we want to move past it and so as i was reading through a lot of that it felt as though judaism was very uh, accommodating of this religion where the, you're not even allowed to talk about your experience where the the putting this experience into language would destroy it this this sort of comes from kabbalah mm. so it's in a way not it, it's an invented strain of Judaism, but it's not disconnected from it, uh, in my mind. Mm. Now, Samuel is a, a father who cares about his family, wants to get it back together. Um, he sounds quite different from the father who opens in kind of exhilarating fashion uh, your book, Notable American Women, with an attack on his son who is called Ben Marcus. Um, what's a wide range there? Well, there are two different characters. Yeah, two different characters, of course. Yeah. But two different. There seems to be both hostility in the father and. You know, in Notable American Women, I, when I started yeah. writing that, I just thought it was would be really funny if my parents wrote screeds against me, <laughs> sort of denouncing me and insisting I shouldn't be born. It was more, it was funnier, it was more interesting and more fraught than if they said what a great guy I was. In other words, it just felt dramatically a lot more, it just felt as though there, were, there was more potential to that. And, and uh, in the flame alphabet, my second kid had just been born and what was inconceivable to me was ever losing my children along with ever losing language, which then sort of presented itself as the very obvious marching orders for this book. It's a book in which someone's going to lose both. Mm -hmm. And I suppose at that time, that's what I thought a novel was, is you take a viable or credible character-like thing and you just take everything away from him. And ta-da, ta you have a book. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's a crude, crude way of looking at, at a book. But it, I think, to me, that was enough. It was like the sort of sorcery I wanted to put into place to get myself interested. Because if I wasn't, then I wasn't going to do it. I just wasn't mm. going to work on it. Mm. You uh, teach writing at Columbia in New York. Yeah. The creative writing industry in America, as a or the crea creative writing programs, hold a sort of 
strange position in that so many people apply to them. Sometimes there are more MFAs in writing given out in America than MBAs, but they're also often denounced and often denounced from within. It'd be so great if there was a sports league where the <laughs> MBA crowd and the MFA crowd, maybe like an ultimate fighting. Yeah, I mean, well, they're on the same campuses. I think the writers would yeah. all be killed. Really? They'd be killed in the first night. <laughs> um, um, sorry. Well, I'm trying to think of it. What are the what are the virtues of this form of apprenticeship, and what do you think might be some of its vices? Well, I don't tend to be one of the people wringing his hands over this this phenomenon. Uh, I, I think that. Uh, it's a chance to read books and discuss them and discuss writing and discuss its possibilities and to look at how editing can transform a text and what might be possible in revision and the consequences of removing a word from a sentence. It's, it's a chance to do all of those things with a group of people who care about it desperately. I think we get into trouble if we say, well, this is going to be for something. This is going to advance something. This is going to change the way writing is done. One of the criticisms is there's this kind of democracy and you're supposed to produce a piece of writing that 12 people all agree is okay. And I've, I've never seen that and I would never want to be part of that. M my feeling in the class is there's something wrong if everyone agrees with each other. The idea really is to expose a writer to a range of opinions because that's a little bit like what used to be called the real world is, but now there just are no opinions. Um, so it's, I think it's a way to, uh, to, to read seriously, to talk seriously about the possibilities of literature, and to help students uh, learn to read themselves, learn to edit themselves, learn to ask more from what they've done, learn to realize that competence is... It, like if it can be achieved, then it's not interesting. That's sort of my feeling. That's what I would say to students. Like if you can learn this, then there's, it's just there's no use to it. The trick is sort of learning a bunch and then hoping by rubbing it all together that something unique can can arise out of it. Um, as to the the perils of all of it, well, you know, you're you're spending time on something that for the most part the world doesn't want, and I think you have to. You know, my feeling is you shouldn't. Do it if you don't want to. Sometimes when these programs are criticized, it's as though we're forcing people to go to them. It's like you must get an MFA. They are sometimes compared to the gulag. It's, which, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, guess I, I guess I just wish it was a little more fair. I wish we could go to dance studios and say, dancing cannot be taught. <laughs> you know, and just get really mad at the people teaching dance. Because they, they have escaped all criticism. The people yeah. teaching fucking ballet. Right? Do, you, yeah, do you think there's a connection between um, this sort of – do you think there's a connection between people who – many of whom you've discussed in your essay on experimentalism who disdain experimental writing and people who think that a, a writer should not need to be educated, should kind of spring like Athena, kind of fully formed as this kind of authentic – um yeah unschooled yeah you know byron naturally and do you think that has something to do with uh, you know america's often touted anti-intellectualism 
Yeah, sure. And, and you know, the other thing to mention is there are some really terrible teachers out there, you know, record-setting, colossally terrible teachers who, who feel that good writing is only the kind of writing that they would do. Yeah. And so I've, I've been on job interviews in which someone might say to me, well, you know, you write this certain kind of way. How do you teach to people who don't want to write the way you do? And to me, it's such a crazy question, and I want to, but never do say, well, how, how do you? I mean, how would anyone? And, the, you know, to me, the I, I'm sort of horrified if anyone sounds like me. I think that's just a huge failure. This is a huge mistake. I'm making that mistake so they don't have to. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, so I, in some sense, the culture probably deserves its derision, and it's probably helped help the culture – uh, maybe seek to be more substantive and, and maybe it, it worries people because it's connected with schooling and we think, well, school should be practical. It should lead to something that, uh, you know, it should, it should, uh, lead to a job. Uh, and, and I suppose these, these arguments are, are good to have. I just believe in being very honest with people before they come to do this sort of thing. And, and I think writers need to start discovering about themselves and like what what will bring work out of them. What what do they need? What are like if I asked you what your ideal working conditions are? You know, you you've, you've learned them over the years, and I think a young writer has to figure it out. Well, I need to be in a room where lots of people are reading me and line editing me and pushing me, and where I see the disgust on their faces when I read out loud and go home because and want to try harder. And others will say, "Well, I just want to be alone. I hate all people except me, mom." And uh, I. You know, so uh, I think it's about students figuring out what's going to work for them. And the, the program isn't there for all writers. It's just there for the ones who are choosing it. But, yeah, you know, I, I think it's possible that that's what's going on, what you suggest. I actually did take a creative writing course. Since you asked, I did take a creative writing course once. And um, my favorite class uh, was the last class of the year, which we held in my apartment, um, which was in a basement. And I had this uh, couch that seemed to have been stolen, say, from a doctor's office or a psychiatry. Seemed? No, well, my father got <laughs> oh, hold of it. He, my father would was involved in a lot of carting away of refuse from offices and, and computer labs. So we had the person whose story was being discussed, of whom I was one, uh, lie down on the couch oh. while that was I, – I loved it. Um, one of uh, one of um, one of you're hired. One of my favorite books that uh, I left back in America when I moved here is your anthology, the anchor book of the New American Short Story, which I think must have come out. When did that come out? Around 2001? No, 2004. Okay. Um, my question here is what. What new things have you seen coming since then? In terms I feel of that all innovation stopped after that <laughs> anthology. <laughs> That's a good question. Emma, what do you like since then? If you were redoing the anthology right now, do you think it might be markedly different? Or if you were to do a second volume? It's funny because I, in some ways, have stopped keeping up with with new writing or and you know realize that I love to read Chekhov and Tolstoy and Jane Bowles and 
you know, just really trying to read much more in the past. And recently I've started to edit the fiction for a new publication called The American Reader, and I've been reading lots of lots of new work. And so there are some writers I think are interesting. Um, there's this, There's a writer... Blake Butler, whose work I like, and Amelia Gray. I don't know if they're published in the UK. She's she's also interesting. Uh, you know, Threats I, is her book. Yeah, right? yeah. she's a book called Threats. Yeah, and Blake has he's published about eight books in two. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get twenty percent below MSRP for an average of fifteen thousand one seventy eight under MSRP on the purchase of a twenty twenty three Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland four by e or Summit four by e. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The last two years. Yeah. Not so, mistaken. Right ahead. Right including a good nonfiction book on insomnia. Yeah. Uh, there's a... I, I, do you see that book by Ellen Ullman called By Blood? It's a really interesting yeah, novel. Yeah, I, I saw it. I haven't read it. It's kind of a surveillance novel. Uh, so I, I think when I when I did that anthology, one of the great things is I wrote to everyone I could think of and just said, what, give me your list of great story writers because I just need a really long list to see what I'm missing, what I'm forgetting, what, I, what I'm not reading. And I just spent a summer reading everything I could get my hands on and then going back, and if something survived two or three readings, it, it got into a kind of pile. And if I just kept reading it and it kept opening up and I kept getting excited, then it went into the book. So the book was an occasion, an occasion for really deep research. And so it would be fun to do that again because I feel that I'm, I'm very behind on, on what's exciting. Um, so I know a lot of people are reading American Reader right now because it's in New York, it's something people are talking about. There was a big article in New York Times about it. So that's one of the journals that's really kind of getting around right now. But there are loads and loads of journals in America that sort of don't get around much. And I'm one, and you're a short story writer who you can basically publish anywhere. You're in the New Yorker, you're in Harper's all the time. I can't publish in but, Forbes. For well, no, anywhere that runs fiction, any yeah, well, that'd be great. <laughs> Forbes, yeah, interesting or you That's know just like my yeah, That's no, just like uh, I would like House and Garden. Yeah. yeah, actually, you could do some really good stuff there. I feel like I yeah. could. Yeah. Um, whereas in the there was there say seventy years ago, there were many more magazines doing this stuff yeah. and you could make a living as a magazine short story writer. Some people did John Cheever, for example. Um, what do you tell students who you're teaching to write short stories what that thinking. are entering into this yeah. kind of situation? I, I, I tell them to do a little bit what I did when I was that age, I would go, I was in school writing stories. I would go to a bookstore in New York called St. Mark's Books, and it had a big wall of literary journals. And uh, I really couldn't afford them, and I would just pick them up and thumb through them. And some were <clears throat> so clearly not 
in my language or in my sphere are exciting and others really were exciting. And I just, I tried to read to find the venues that were publishing work that I thought was in, interesting, energetic, and, and I, I would send it to them. And I think this is happening a lot online now. There, mm. there are lots of, lots of pretty interesting online magazines. I don't keep up with all of them, but I think that the trick is to find your, find a likely readership. Don't just start submitting, you know, your, <clears throat> your recluse fiction to outside magazine, yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, you know, and when students become a little proactive about finding the, the work that it doesn't have to be like theirs, but in some sense is aligned, that, then I think, you know, they're becoming readers of the, of the, the they're sort of the likely readers of these venues and then they might see themselves as part of a community however unspoken so it's possible if you count the internet that there are just as many venues and just as many places for mm. for this to happen but it's true in print it's pretty diminished yeah. or, or certain fewer places get paid um <clears throat> do you do you read a lot of fiction online because i don't i see a lot of flowering of interviews with fiction writers people writing about books yeah. i don't it might be an insufficiency in me but i don't really i i find myself unlikely to read a short story in on my yeah, laptop I, I print i print it out yeah but okay but you do go but we're old yeah we you know are what i mean we are. we're, we're we old are. We and are. my students read on their screens and you know, they they laugh at this debate we all yeah. have. They laugh at it. It's ridiculous, of, you know, our screens replacing the page. And, it, it, you know, I think it's an anxiety for a particular generation. And, of course, we want this anxiety to matter. Yeah. <laughs> and we want people to be interested in it. But I, I just don't – you know, I'm, ne I'm never going to really, as far as I know, really be a big device reader. But – well, no one, no one cares. Yeah. With that question, I feel like I myself have sort of passed my expiration date or Are you gonna take a nap? expiry <laughs> date, as um, you say in this country. So perhaps you all would like to uh, ask Ben some questions. Don't be shy. Hello there. Um, uh, uh, in order to get the ball rolling, I'll try and bowl an easy uh, The Flame Alphabet's a novel. Are you, did you make the decision to say it, have the words a novel on the cover? It's an okay. interesting choice what, to label it a novel. And, and I think your previous novel was also labeled a novel. I might be wrong. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that is, my last so, novel was also called um, a novel. Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> it says you, it you, right there. Yeah, some, people, some people don't feel the need to say it's a novel. Why oh, you put, make that? You mean to put it on the cover? Yeah. yeah Sorry, that's I, actually I, a good question. Mean, yeah. No, I, I, uh, I don't think I said this, these words must be on the cover. So I guess I, I'm technically not the person who decided that. Is it not a convention of book design? It's not? It's just me? It sounds a little desperate then. It's I, I guess my, I, if I can jump in, um, how did the, uh, the illustrations in the new edition of The Agent Wire and String come, out, come about? Well, um, a fellow named Max from Granta, who's here hiding, uh, told me about a very wonderful uh, artist named Catherine Morgan, who is over there, 
had been, I think, making some drawings based on her reading of the book. And would we be interested in uh, um, doing reprinting the book and uh, having her drawings, you know, featured heavily, letting her essentially redesign the book from top to bottom? And uh, I said, No, that sounds horrible. <laughs> no, I'd rather it stay out of print. And then, in people's memory, it's, it's this amazing book. You can't get it now. Um, no, it's, it was a great opportunity. So uh, I just felt like that I was incredibly lucky that somebody, she has a tremendous imagination. I can't imagine what it, what it would be like to try to make imagery from some of that text. And what is so great is I feel that she didn't try to illustrate what was there, but she almost, she she did her her own thing. And it it clearly has the spirit of the book, but it feels like it's hers, and I think goes really nicely together. I just feel flattered. Um, so then this was just something that happened. I, I had nothing to do with, um, but it's a very great American uh, book jacket designer named Peter Mendelssohn, and, um, and he's done the next one as well, which is coming out. I've often noticed that your cover is on the New York Times, um, uh, New York Times' book page, Above a uh, best book covers of twenty twelve. Uh, yeah, he, Peter wins a lot of uh, accolade for his for his jackets. He's just terrific, and uh, yeah, and he he's a great reader. Sort of very odd. Yeah. He he actually actually read the book, um, and uh, and he's just got a great eye. And I think he's also not. It's funny because. When we were first talking, he said, well, is there anything you want or don't want? And I tend to believe that writers should not have any part in the design decision because they're irrational and they have terrible taste and they have some fantasy of something that, you know, can't can't exist. And uh, I just said jokingly, well, just as long as you don't have burning letters, I'll probably be happy. And uh, <laughs> so he actually did make fire, which – but – in, to hear him tell it, he cut out all these paper triangles and he was making a bird out of them because he thought the novel was all about birds. That was an early draft. And, uh, <laughs> and so he was making a bird and then he just flipped them around and thought, oh, well, actually, it's fire. And so he felt that because he tricked himself into designing fire, it was okay to represent fire. <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, I was thinking the Belgian poet Henri Michaud, who wrote a book called Elsewhere, uh, which I think is very productive sometimes to set alongside the age of wire and string, uh, talked about surrealism being the great permission to write. Um, <clears throat> I was wondering if you'd ever come across Michaud, but more importantly, uh, whether um, you could talk about the things that were perhaps for you the great permission or whether you felt that you ever required permission to write in the way that that you've uh, evolved sure um, it's been a long time since I've read Michaud but I have not read that book but I, I will tonight um, <laughs> when I was in college I was reading a lot of the American short story writers who at the time were called the dirty realists not because they themselves were physically filthy but uh, because they purportedly were writing about dirty things. Like, also called the Kmart realists. Because oh, they were all Kmart, Kmart employees. It's a, it's a good place to work. Yeah. Uh, 
and B.D. Richard Ford, Raymond Carver, uh, and and it was a certain kind of thing, and I, I was I was taken by it, and I was interested in it. But I, I read a writer named Donald Barthelmay, who was writing a, a little bit similarly, but w would explode his moments with a kind of outlandishness that I just had not encountered in contemporary fiction. And because he could write in a in a pretty easy, familiar vernacular, because it sounded spoken, it sounded as though there wasn't much artifice, it, it did give give me a kind of permission. And I, you know, I promptly started to imitate him very, very carefully, um, which for some reason the world was not interested in, um, my faithful imitations of Barthelme. But he, he was a writer who, who seemed to open some things up for me. And around the same time, totally unrelated, I was reading a lot of John Ashbery. And I think he was important to me and Borges was was a really really big one in terms of sort of giving me permission not to think in terms of characters and moments and events and all of that but to think of information as the substance that I was going to be trying to present and and I think Borges in particular for his authoritative rhetoric for the way he could make outlandish things believable. And so that was, I think, early, early on was a big interest of mine was to just make impossible things seem believable. Like I just, I just wanted to be better at believability. I thought it was sort of interesting to, to practice with believability. Um, in, the, in the flame alphabet, it's uh, possible to follow the book sequentially from its beginning to its end and to understand that the end occurs where you would expect the end of a plotted novel to occur. With The Age of Wire and String, does it have a beginning, middle and end? And if not, how did you know it was finished and why did you finish it where you did finish it? It was a source of confusion for me, for sure. What what, what made it a book? What what goes first? What goes next? And in some sense, the that problem is also there in notable American women, which I think can be, unfortunately, can be shuffled a little bit. And and uh, it's the kind of thing that sort of haunted me and still haunts me a little bit, uh, because I I I I like the idea of thinking of of a book as something that if you know if you move a single word, the whole thing collapses and it's suddenly horrible. But uh, at the age of wire and string, I think I just. I, I had a certain amount of material. Then I realized that there are a lot of invented terms and words in it, so I should write a glossary for those. But but in the glossary, I should actually make those terms and words either more confusing, well, more enigmatic. Confusing is the wrong word. I think I was probably pretty interested in enigma and uh, making things feel more uncanny, and then defining things that then weren't in the book. But as to the actual final order, there was probably just a certain point when, you know, disgust kept me from continuing and I just had to settle for, for what I had. Um, I couldn't really pretend there was some divine sequence there that I would just find. And I, I began to think about writing something in order. <laughs> It was, you know, 
this big discovery was that I would just write uh, for, at point A and go to point B. And in some sense, that's what the flame alphabet was. Because I, not just because I, I wanted to do that for its own sake, but I was interested in what I would write when I was on page 100 that I could just never plan for and never anticipate. That would I be using and feeling and relying on what I'd already written? And would it lead me deeper into something? Because with Notable American Women, in, in particular, I would finish a section and feel sort of spent and done and unsure of what to do next. And doing something next meant almost, it was almost as though I had to start a new book, like a, a short one, but a whole new project had to come up off the ground. I wrote Women's Pantomime, and then I had to, uh, from there, do a whole new section on fainting. You know, each thing seemed discreet. And it was very hard to move through the book. So I guess I started to think, well, if it's going to be a novel at all, it has to have momentum. And then the question is, well, how do you do that? And this was my, my attempt. Um, yeah, that was a very interesting answer, I think, to follow up on that. Uh, I mean, I really appreciated that format of like the discreteness and sort of, you know, you could pick up almost anywhere in the yeah. book and just... Uh, enjoy it what's stopping you uh except for your own kind of like maybe you know adventure of making a novel have you experimented or would you like to experiment with other forms of publishing this is like i think there would be a lot of readers who would actually like to follow you in a in a less you know um monumental format like what of, i i actually wouldn't whatever you would find suitable but without that kind of like um as an app, you know, I I don't want to go into yeah, but yeah. actually yeah, or the scribbled notes on yeah, probably nothing is stopping me. Um, I think though, I've sort of discovered about myself that <clears throat> I I don't have a lot that I'd like to write, or I don't really know what it is, and I have to do certain things. To, to get at material that I'm going to care enough about, and it seems to have happened only with book-like things, I guess. But I, I, I and, and, and I suppose I've possibly been a little bit lazy, but I love sentences and I love to write them and I love to see what happens when I put one after another and get into states of feeling I've never had before. And I suppose I've allowed the the fact of a book sort of waiting there to fill, I just allowed that to um, take care of the like the production side or the, the distribution side. I haven't really become that interested in distribution as a, or I haven't really seen it as a problem. Um, but it's interesting, you know, there's, uh, I don't know if anyone knows about this, there's a magazine called The Thing Quarterly and they make objects instead of um, you know yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, so Jonathan Letha made a pair of glasses, and this is a chance for me to think about this, but I don't know if anyone's going to care, but I'm making a lotion. Um, what, are, what are the ingredients? Well, I'm not going to tell you the ingredients. The, the lotion is going to make you a more sensitive reader, though, to certain oh, kinds yeah. of writing. Where do you apply it? I'm not going to tell you that either. You no, know, but if I wanted to lotion. buy it, I... I would well, there are going to be different options okay. where to apply it, and and different different results. You're being very 
aggressive. I'm interested in the product. Well, um, it's, we're, we're working on the instructions right now. But um, because it turns out if you make a lotion, it actually has to go through the FDA. Oh. Which in well, America not in is, this uh, country. I could, yeah, yeah, so we could bootleg the lotion over here. Is that what, is that what it would be called? Counterfeit. Counter or smuggle. I'll smuggle it. Um, It'd be hard to take on a plane, and although because I, I, I only take a carry-on baggage. Yeah, well, you get <laughs> three ounces of right. readers readers cream. It's going to be called. You know, I think it's a it's a, it's it's a fascinating territory, right? How to get how to get something from from me to you that might be made of language, and uh, I, I guess I'd like to think in the future maybe I'll I'll, I'll come up with something. And not rely on 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 books. You, you find books inadequate. You can admit it. <laughs> but it's funny, you know. I don't actually do this, but I tend to often write about different ways of transmitting language. It seems to be a subject I return to over and over again. Um, and and obviously, when you're writing it, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to have like a 3D printer. Uh, you've you've kind of preempted my question in a way um, and I was trying to figure out a way of formulating this as a question but you you seem to be intimately acquainted and have a preoccupation with uh, with materials everything's either oily or greasy or hairy or made of cloth and uh, usually comes out of someone's mouth in some way shape or form but I was and so I sort of <laughs> I was, it's kind of, to me, it's, it's almost seems like a sort of sculptor's sensibility, really. And so I was wondering also, um, these things seem to be, as you just said, seem to be sort of stand-ins or sort of embodied kinds of information or some kind of language or communication. I was just wondering, uh, well, it's not really a question, but could you comment on that a little bit? Yeah. I think I, I return to the kind of imagery that really scares me and makes me worried, it makes me nervous or compelled or that I find beautiful and it turns out it's fairly limited. Uh, and it sort of concerns me that, you know, that, that if there's, you know, a man and a piece of cloth, I'm just going to combine them and put the cloth in his mouth and there are just these things I seem to want to have happen in, in, in my mind and I'd like, to, I, I want to see them. But I think now, for better or worse, I've gotten a lot more self-conscious about it. You know, and I think I remember when I started writing the flame alphabet, I wrote a little note to myself and it was something like, there will be no fucking wind in this book and there will be no goddamn there references. Is, there is wind. Well, I, I was going to get to that. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so I often feel as though I have to move away from these these sort of objects, these interests, because in some sense they become a kind of shorthand and then I I'm, I, I feel I'm doing them in in lieu of something else. And so I guess for the past two years in the short stories I've written, I've, I've really kind of been guarding them from lots of topics, imagery, and subjects. First of all, believing that, well, I'll keep that stuff out and maybe there'll be some pressure from that, those barriers, and, and the stories will still sound and feel like mine because I wrote them. But, so in some sense, I feel like I've had enough with that, with, with those things. But then I don't really know if, if that's the right approach to refuse them. And um, 
but yeah, they, they, that's, that stuff just interests me. I think it's, I, I tend to kind of think of things that are funny and horrifying at the same time that are, you know, I, some people said that, you know, the, the flame alphabet was kind of reveled in the grisly and the gruesome, and that, that really wasn't my intention. It turns out, I guess, I possibly over overdid all all that like the ailing and I have someone wrote there's like pus and that, that, like stuff oozing out of people's bodies and I don't think the word pus is in the book and I, was I really, don't recall it I don't I, I, I don't like that word really I don't see what you know why you would need to say that and um, it didn't seem to me at all it might be a medical thriller but it's not really a hospital book I wish I could use that quote that would have solved so many <laughs> conflicts for me um, but I, I think what happens is I do tend to see something I've done and after the fact make a try to make a drastic correction. And I've done that with some short stories and I'm sort of starting a new novel and thinking a little a little bit about that too. Um, so it's not really a great answer. It's, you know, it's like why do it's well it's but but these questions like, you know, why do I you thought love, both why, were interesting. <laughs> why do you love a certain food? Like what is it about cake? You just love cake. You know, so it's just like that with some imagery for me. I just think it's uh, just completely yummy. Thank you. I, I just had a follow-up to one of Christian's questions about fiction online. I mean, I cite you. Uh, the question is um, what online fiction magazines are um, thriving and uh, or that what which ones might Ben recommend? Well, I end up using some of these services that aggregate a little bit, like Byliner will send around uh, links and republish stuff online. But there, I like the magazine Tablet, which publishes fiction. Uh, there's also one called Gigantic, but I'm. You, I don't see stuff that's really trying to take on the technology. It seems as though that a lot of that came and went with hypertext, and I don't know how much pe mm. of that people saw over here. But in, um, sort of cyberpunk literature is that was well, that I guess writing, writing that was trying to sort of adapt formally to the mm. way we move through information online, so that um, you could click on the word toast and yeah, I don't know, see a piece of toast. But but so I I think it's out there. I think I, I'm I'm a in some sense sadly a poor person to ask because I I have not really checked out what's what's going on. But I do know more and more magazines are going to online exclusively, and um, and I imagine we'll see we'll see more of it and find better ways of accessing it. I was reading today about Kindle singles, and it seems to be. A kind of an interesting new way. Lots of people are just publishing um, short stories, novellas, something in between. Uh, they, you know, they come out right away. Mm -hmm. And lots of writers who were not, you know, aside from the evil of Amazon, there were lots of writers just not able to find any kind of publisher who could put out their put, put out their own work. And you know, one thing we didn't really talk about at all, which seems to be happening very quickly, is self-publishing. Yeah. Well, I mean that. Fifty Shades of Grey started that way, which is it's uh, has a lot in common What's with the age about? Of, uh, the age of wire and string. That it's kind of companion pieces. How are the how are the illustrations? <laughs> um, I wish I knew more examples. 
There was a, another book that became big online before it got published by University of Chicago. It was called The Naked Singularity. That's it then. We'll, we'll stop there then. No more questions. I'd like to thank Ben and Christian very much for a really interesting talk. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>